Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to the uh, Blue Lake Presbyterian Church, and thank you all for coming this morning. We have a fall house. Thank you. Well, the title to today's sermon is uh, Unity, and it's based on Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22, which we'll be reading in a little bit. Well, a few weeks ago, I visited China with a group of flower farmers, and we went there to explore the flower industry in China. It was my first time ever traveling to this amazing country. What a fascinating trip. I've never seen so many building cranes in my life. <laughs> Everywhere we looked, they were building skyscrapers, roads, bridges, you name it. Well, we visited the uh, wholesale market in Beijing. And then we went to the growing region where all the flowers are grown in southwest China, in an area around the big city of Kunming. It's close to the Thai border. And, um, and, and as the plane started descending, we could look out of the window and we flew over this vast acreage of greenhouses as far as the eye could see. The magnitude of the flower industry in, in China is truly remarkable. Then we visited a flower auction, a carbon copy of the flower auctions you find in Holland. 700 buyers in one room with six clocks buying flowers for several hours. Then at 10.30 at night, we actually went to and what they call the Dunan Flower Electronic Trade Center, where thousands of Chinese farmers and buyers were trading flowers in the middle of the night. Then the next day, we saw some flower farms, hours away from the big city of Kunming. Now we were in the back country of China, in the rural, agrarian portion of the country. Then another memorable part of the trip was the visit to Shanghai. What started as a, as, a, as, a, as a fishing village thousands of years ago has developed in this huge metropolis, the trading center of China, or possibly all of Asia. And on its website, citymayors.com, which lists the largest cities in the world. It ranks Shanghai as number one, with a population of 24.3 million people. We had dinner in Shanghai in an area called the Bund. It's a notable spot overlooking a bend in the Honghu River, with a spectacular view of the city. And we saw a picture on how this city changed from 1990, with no skyscrapers at all, to the city that we saw today, with tons and tons of skyscrapers. It, that picture epitomizes the incredible growth of China in the last less than three de decades. Now, the wealth in Shanghai 
is palpable to any observer. We walked through downtown and saw a Westgate Mall with the identical upscale retailers you will find in Manhattan or Chicago or San Francisco. Or driving into Shanghai, we saw more BMWs and Mercedes and Lamborghinis, and, and we even spotted a Bentley dealership. So in other words, Shanghai is an amazingly wealthy city in a country that still has a very low standard of living. According to the National Bureau of Statistics of China, the average disposable household income in the Shanghai region is more than four times that of the rural areas in the back part of China where we visited the growing regions. Now, in the days of the Apostle Paul, in 52 AD, there was a very similar situation. The country of Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, was largely rural and agrarian at the time. It had a very low living standard. And then there was a city, a city called Ephesus, a prominent capital of the Roman Empire in Asia. And just like Shanghai, Ephesus was a prosperous city because it was a seaport, a seaport city with a river leading inland, facilitating trade routes and commerce. And just like Shanghai, the city of Ephesus was built along a bend in the river, the river, the Castor River. Historians describe this ancient city as this bustling, supreme metropolis of Asia. The same thing we could say of Shanghai today. Well, Paul visited Ephesus two times. A short visit at the end of his second missionary journey. And then during Paul's third journey, he stayed and evangelized in Ephesus for three years with great success. Well, the leaders of the church at the time in Ephesus were Aquila and Priscilla, along with Apollos. Ephesus was an important city for Paul because it was strategically located. The gospel threat, the gospel spread via the many trade routes of commerce that passed through and beyond Ephesus. Here, a great door was opened to Paul, and the church was established and strengthened. But eventually, Paul moved on. He moved on to Macedonia, and later to Greece. But by 62 AD, Paul finds himself in Rome, awaiting trial. For two years, he is under house arrest. And this is where he writes a letter to these believers in Ephesus. And that brings us to today's reading in Ephesians 2, 
verses 11 through 22, and I'll give you a moment to look it up. It's in your pew Bible, second part, page 192. So then, remember that at one time, you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision, by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh he made both groups into one. He has broken down the dividing wall. That is, the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and who proclaimed peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and all members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. In him the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. Please let's bow our heads. Guide us, O God, by your word and spirit, that in your light we may see light. In your truth, find wisdom, and in your will, discover your peace, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. So the word unity is mentioned in the Bible only three times. Once in Psalm 133, when David wrote, how wonderful it is, how pleasant, when brothers live together, in unity. Well, in Ephesians, unity is mentioned twice. In this letter, Paul has this deep-rooted urge to articulate to these believers the remarkable transformation that came upon the world through Jesus Christ. The theme unity is the keynote of this letter to the Ephesians. It is shown by the use of certain words and phrases, such as made alive together, raised up together, sitting together, 
and built together. The letter, the letter signifies unity. One new man. One body. One spirit. One Lord. One God. One God and Father of all. So, so earlier, several years earlier, Paul had written to the Galatians. And in Galatians 3.28, Paul wrote, There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male or female. For all of you are one in Christ. So last week, my wife and I watched the movie, Paul, Apostle of Christ. The movie portrays Paul in the Mamertine prison in Rome in 67 AD. And Luke comes to visit him and recorded Paul's experiences in the book of Acts. It also shows Paul dictating his second and last letter to Timothy. Now, five years earlier, when Paul was under house arrest by the Roman authorities in 62 AD, the prison epistles to the Ephesians, the Colossians, the Philippians, and Philemon were all written. But here's the question. The question is, why did Paul feel a need to write his letter to the Ephesians? He already had spent three years with those folks, longer than any other group he had visited. But there was still doubt. Doubt among these believers in Ephesus. And in this letter, Paul tries to bring clarity to a fundamental question that has captivated believers and non-believers alike for thousands of years. And it is still a hot topic today. And that is the question of salvation. What do we need to do to be saved? This question centered on the premise that salvation belonged to the Israelites. The descendants of the twelve tribes of Jacob. It's not surprising that there was doubt and uncertainty. And in order to get a better understanding, we need to put ourselves in the shoes of those folks at the time. For 2,000 years, since God's covenant with Abraham, salvation belonged to the people of the house of Israel. This covenant is one of the vital pillars of Judaism. And it is the basis for the belief that Jews are the chosen people. God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 17. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between you and me. And then in Genesis 22, 17, God told Abraham, I will surely bless you and make you a descendant as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. 
A little bit earlier this morning, Bill uh, wrote out of, he, he read out of uh, Psalm 89. Well, this psalm was written by Ethan. Nearly thousand years after Abraham, the Lord spoke to Ethan in a vision. I have found my servant David. With my holy oil, I will anoint him. He shall cry to me, You are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. I will establish his line forever. So God has blessed the Israelites throughout history. Many times after evil-inspired wicked rulers would subjugate or persecute the Jewish people, God led the Israelites out of Egypt in 1500 BC, killing the entire Egyptian army in the Red Sea. He brought the Israelites out of 70 years of captivity in Babylon in 537 BC. And after the Romans ransacked Jerusalem in 70 AD and destroyed the temple, millions scattered across the Middle East, North Africa, Asia, and Europe. And this is where most of the Jews were living and had lived for 1900 years. But then after the Holocaust and the Second World War, the state of Israel, with a population of 800,000 people, was founded in May of 1948. Well, years ago, my wife and I visited Yet Vashem, the, the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. And at the enter of this museum, there's this huge entrance and it says in huge letters, Ezekiel thirty-seven fourteen, etched in stone. I will put my breath into you, and you shall live again. I will set you upon your own soil. So here we are, 70 years later. The population of this tiny country has grown to 8.5 million people. Israel is in the forefront of technology. It has one of the highest R&D investment ratios in the world, with 4.3% of GDP. Israel has almost twice as many scientists and researchers per capita than the United States of America. Throughout history, God has blessed the Jewish people with incredible wisdom, in acumen, in law, in medicine, in finance, and in science. Now, back home here in America, Jewish roots can be traced to the top technology companies that we see today, including Dell, Google, Facebook, Oracle, and many more. So there is no doubt that God continues to bless the descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel with incredible wisdom and business sense. But what about that salvation question? Now let's see what Jesus had to say about this. 
In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but through me. And he said in John 3, 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. The Bible says in John 8, 31, 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So clearly Paul articulates that through God's grace, Jew and Gentile alike are now one in Christ. Well, let's illustrate this with an example. Life in Christ is like these beautiful tulips that we have in front of us here this morning. Well, I brought a, a tulip with a bulb and a root. The bulbs and the roots convey the Jewish heritage. It is the foundation. Now, a bulb by itself, before you plant it, doesn't give the eye much satisfaction. But this flower couldn't be grown if it wasn't for the bulb. They are one. The flower and the bulbs and the roots are one. When we started a farm in Villa Creek almost two, two decades ago, there was a 40-year-old patch of wine grapes on the property. They're still there today. And we even planted a few more since that time. And with the help of, uh, of a vintner, Will Franklin, we started Trinity Valley Vineyards. And the wines from that ranch uh, have done very well, winning some awards at some pretty prestigious wine competitions around the country. But when we bought these additional plants from a nursery in Napa, the grape varieties were grafted on a specific rootstock. This rootstock is specific for which area these grapes are grown. So you may grow Merlot, the same variety, but in different regions, he used different rootstock. Now, Paul uses this grafting analogy of an olive tree in his letter to the Romans. The Gentiles are the branch of a wild olive tree that is grafted on this cultivated olive tree that depicts the Jewish people, the people of God. The grafted branch draws its water and nutrients through the roots and the trunk of that cultivated tree. And it gets its strength from that tree, the tree of God. So with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, everything changed. God's covenant with the Jewish people is the root, the trunk. But life in Christ is the fruit of the tree. And it doesn't matter where we are. In New York, or Jerusalem, or Rome, or Shanghai, or Blue Lake, California. 
We are one in Christ. In Christ there is no east or west. In him no north or south. But one great fellowship of love throughout the whole wide earth. Paul's message to the Gentiles in Ephesus is that through Jesus Christ we are united as one. We are one. There is unity through the cross. There is unity through the blood of Jesus Christ. There is unity through the resurrection. Now the watershed moment came in Acts 10.44. When the Holy Spirit poured out over the Gentiles. That right there sealed the deal, so to say. It was this gift, this awesome gift of salvation... That has been available to anyone. Anyone willing to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. Make your decision before it is too late. Just a few years ago, a friend suffered a massive heart attack. And he was gone within an hour. That could happen to any of us. At any time. Pray to our Father who is in heaven to forgive us from our sins. But then repent of our sins and ask Jesus to come into our hearts and accept Him as Lord and Savior. And no matter where we come from, no matter what we have done in the past, the Lord will bring us into His kingdom. He will lead you through that narrow gate on that pathway to eternal life. Thank you. God bless you. Amen.